You'll be pleased to hear that after a long time of searching, I have found Jesus. Yeah, finally. Uh, we were given a book at Christmas called Finding Jesus. It's a bit like Where's Wally or Where's Waldo for those uh, who are from the States. And uh, you can find Jesus on every page. It's amazing. People say that you can find Jesus on every page of the Bible as well. So I'd highly recommend reading the Bible every day. But uh, we had some fun with that book. Holy Spirit, we just want to say again, you're welcome. We ask that you would uh, open our minds, open our hearts to be able to hear and receive what you want to say to us this morning. We ask that you'd help us to put, any si- put aside any preconceived ideas, any assumptions that we have, and that you'd help us to come afresh to your word and to catch what's on your heart. So, Holy Spirit, we welcome you. This morning, I want to look at one of the most emotive and sensitive issues in our culture today. And so please be patient with me if I don't get it all quite right. The subject is God and LGBTQ. There are three different uh, areas that we could look at, and we're going to just look at one. And uh, because of our time constraint, we won't even be able to do justice to that one area. Uh, or go into that much detail, but I hope that it will help to fill out some of the picture for you and give you a bit more of an understanding, because I think there's a lot of confusion out there at the moment. The three potential areas that we could look at are theology, psychology, and sociology. In other words, the theology is what does the Bible say, and uh, that's what we're going to confine ourselves to this morning. We're not going to look at the psychology of LGBTQ to see where it comes from. I've mentioned some of that before. Nor are we going to look at the sociology of uh, what should or shouldn't happen in our society. We also need to be clear about the context in which we're uh, talking. So my assumption this morning is that the majority of us here are people who have surrendered our lives to Jesus and want to follow him in all things. And uh, for those who are listening to the podcast, um, you may come from a very different background, which brings different assumptions, different questions. Um, If you don't come into that category of uh, someone who follows Jesus, then uh, please be assured you are incredibly welcome. But some of this may not make sense to you for that reason. If I was addressing, for example, a room full of people who were atheists, who were not following Jesus, and were all very active in the LGBT community, I would shape the material very, very differently, and probably uh, it would be unrecognizable. If we were to stand outside Oxford Cathedral, or any cathedral for that matter, the, the buildings are impressive, but the windows don't really look that great, do they? Um, But if we were to go inside, as with this slide, and please don't put the slides up until I say, because you steal the punchline. So, but if we were to go in, as with this slide, (laughs) thank you very much, uh, we then see the full picture and uh, the amazing colors. And obviously, this photograph hasn't done justice to to this wonderful, uh, amazing picture uh, in Oxford Cathedral. 
Looking at the Bible from a position of not following Jesus and looking at this particular subject may not make sense. It's like being outside the building. But when we look at these things, when we look at what the Bible says, having met Jesus and having come to know him, then suddenly everything looks different. And you see things that before you weren't able to see. So let's, uh, let's move on to a couple of verses from the Bible. In uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 9, it says, Don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what's wrong, hold tightly to what's good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. I don't know if any of you remember the early days of the world's strongest man. I'm not going to ask you to uh, show your age. But one of the uh, exercises, one of the contests they had uh, was the Pillars of Hercules. And we've got a picture of that coming up. And as you can see, there were two very heavy uh, pillars that were leaning out trying to pull the arms out of the sockets of the athletes. It was a test of strength and especially of their grip. And you can see the guy on the bottom left there. He's, he's beginning to go over one way. He's not going to last much longer. Issues in life can produce tension. And in the vineyard, we talk about the radical middle. Often, the Bible gives us two subjects which can appear contradictory, but both are true, and neither of them gives the whole truth on its own. And so we hold them in tension, and we live in the radical middle. And sometimes that can be very uncomfortable. It's very easy to focus on one truth at the expense of the other, or to deny both truths because they appear to contradict, and then you end up in the liberal middle. And we don't want to be at either extreme. We want to be able to acknowledge what's true. The problem we have with our Western, rational, modernist worldview, and people talk about being in a post, uh, post-modern culture, but we're still thinking in a modernist way, is that we find it difficult to hold truths in tension. But in the majority of the developing world and Certainly in the first century biblical worldview, it wasn't a problem to be able to have two things and hold them in tension and to be able to hold the truth from each one without saying, well, they contradict so they can't be true. Let's uh, go on to the next slide, the verses again from Romans 12, verse 9. Don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good, Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Here we have two things to hold in tension. To be radically inclusive, but also to be radically holy. It tells us here to really love people, but at the same time to hate what is wrong. And I think that's a good place and a good framework to start with uh, for the LGBTQ subject because often the assumption is that you can only do one or the other. But from a biblical point of view, as we'll see, that's not true. So let's look at the first one, being radically inclusive. Uh, Romans 12, 9 again. Don't just pretend, really love them. Genuine affection, delight in honoring each other. We honor people for who they are without being offended at who they're not. 
you might want to write that down because that is really, really important. I think it came from Bill Johnson originally, but I don't know, he may have nicked it from someone else. We honor people for who they are without being offended at who they're not. We remember that all of us are broken people and without the forgiveness that Jesus won for us on the cross, none of us would be able to come before God. And so we don't allow any form of prejudice towards people who are different from us, whether that's to do with their skin color, their sexuality, their economic status, their beliefs, or anything else. We follow the example of Jesus in being willing to and genuinely embracing people who would be rejected by the most religious people. The example I've mentioned before, and I love to come back to it again and again, is when a woman was caught committing adultery and she was dragged before Jesus. She would have been absolutely petrified because she knew the death penalty, uh, the, the crime, the, the uh, penalty for her uh, sin was that she would be stoned to death, the law at that time. And so as a test, the religious leaders asked Jesus, what should we do? They were trying to catch him out. Would he uphold their laws? Would he rebel? And Jesus said nothing. He just bent down and started to write in the dirt at his feet. And we're not told what he wrote. But I think he picked out the wrongdoing, the sin of the religious leaders. Things like jealousy, greed, selfishness, lust, self-promotion, and so on. Just picking out one for, or many for each of the guys who were standing there. And we're told that one by one, they started to walk away. Starting with the eldest, because he had sinned more than the rest, just because he's been on planet Earth longer. I think they were convicted of their sin, and so they left. And when not one of them was left... Jesus stood and faced the woman, and he said, and it's recorded in John 10, verse 8, he said, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. I think her heart was probably still racing. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. So can you catch what is on God's heart? That Jesus didn't want to condemn her. He wanted to set her free. He wanted to bring healing. He wanted to bring life to her. Earlier on in, the, uh, in John's account of Jesus' life, it says in John chapter 3, verse 16, God loved the people of this world so much that he gave his only son. In other words, he came himself in human form so that everyone who has faith in him will have eternal life and never really die. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, to condemn its people, he sent him to save them. It says, everyone who has faith in him will have eternal life. It doesn't say everyone who is heterosexual will have eternal life. There's no difference when it comes to our faith in God. If God does not condemn people, then why do we? Are we greater than God? Do we have better standards or some better understanding than Jesus did? We can find ourselves so busy judging people on the externals, on their external behavior, when God looks at the heart. The whole point of the good news we proclaim is that God helps us 
when we can't help ourselves, when we are at our most broken, most rebellious, and furthest from him. It's at that point that he lavishes his love upon us with forgiveness and restoration. And that should be our attitude towards anybody who is different from us. And so we're called to be radically inclusive rather than religious or legalistic. And you find that right the way through the Bible. I remember when I was at college when a good friend of mine asked if he could uh, pop over and see me and he plucked up the courage to tell me that he had homosexual orientation. Now, this was years before the radical shift we've seen in society. And uh, as a teacher, if the school had found out, he would have been sacked. If the press had found out, he would have been publicly humiliate, humiliated by the media. And, uh, you know, he, he would have been in big trouble. And uh, as he was telling me about his homosexual orientation... Uh, he explained that he'd never acted out on the feelings because he knew what the Bible said. And he told me about his fears. I had to work out how was I going to respond to him. He was afraid I was going to reject him. And I have to confess that everything in me found what he said repulsive because I have no homosexual feelings, but I did and do love him and respect him as a great friend. And so when he finished, I went over and gave him a hug. I don't think there were any words I could say that could have communicated better. Uh, I have no right to reject someone who has been accepted by God. At the same time as being radically inclusive, we are also called to hold the tension with being radically holy. It's not one or the other. So let's look at that for a moment. Radically holy. When Jesus turned that disaster away for the woman who was caught in adultery, he didn't just embrace her in what he did. He told her to leave her sinful lifestyle. It wasn't just one or the other. Jesus welcomed her, he embraced her, but he was still able to hold up the standard, the godly standard of how we should live. Jesus was able to live in the radical middle, able to be radically inclusive in the way that the religious leaders weren't, but also to be radically holy at the same time. When it comes to looking at what the Bible says with regard to homosexuality, there are two main camps of thinking. The affirming camp says that the Bible allows homosexuality and the non-affirming camp says homosexual action is forbidden. In the reading that I've done, and uh, that includes reading the Bible and what some very uh, wise and insightful people have said, uh, it seems that there are a number of problems with the affirming hermeneutic. That is, the hermeneutic is the way people interpret the Bible. And the first one is distance. Uh, the first thing that many affirmers say that our context here in the West in the 21st century is very different from the first century and that homosexual orientation was not recognized until recently and that it just wasn't a feature back in the first century. And therefore they claim that what the Bible says is not relevant because of the distance 
of time and context. However, research increasingly shows that that's not true and that homosexuality, homosexuality was a common feature in many parts of the Greco-Roman world. Nor was it, as they claim, just where a dominant person forced their homosexuality onto an unwilling subject, such as a slave or a, a junior. Uh, an example of that was Julius Caesar and the king of Bithynia, uh, who had a homosexual encounter. And it was something that they both consented to. It was a, a relatively common thing, although many people did uh, denounce it as well. So I don't think distance is a good argument. The second one is inversion. This turns passages that say you can't and turns it upside down and says you can. When something is clear in black and white and the meaning is inverted, I think we have a problem. And I don't think we're doing justice to what was originally written. And it is the supreme arrogance of modernism that makes us think that we know better than the original writer. And that when they say don't, it means do. And when it says you can't, it means you can. So that argument holds no water at all for me. The, uh, the third one that I've picked out is Gnostic heresy. Gnostic heresy claims a higher revelation uh, to the person, enabling them to overrule what was originally written. Even if they can't get their head around the distance thing or inversion thing, and they say, well, actually, it does say, and it does mean what it originally said, we now have a better understanding. We have a higher revelation, and so we can just ignore that. Muhammad did that, claiming he'd received a higher revelation than the Bible. Other groups, such as Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, did the same thing, and they have their texts that they, uh, they look to. But many people, many affirmers, also use this argument, which enables them to rule out any passage in the Bible that they disagree with. Gnostic heresy was something that was seen, uh, it was common quite early on, people trying to uh, get around the, uh, some of the things that the Bible said, particularly some of the things to do with lifestyle and holiness. The other thing I just wanted to note is that if the affirming hermeneutic, that way of thinking, that logic, is applied to other areas, then bestiality and paedophilia would also be accepted and encouraged. Because if you apply the same logic to those areas, you would allow those things as well. And uh, in fact, when you look at some other cultures that have embraced homosexuality in the way our culture has, the logical thing that they moved on to was paedophilia and bestiality. There are a number of biblical texts that are relevant to the subject. Non-affirmers also take into account other texts as well, but we've got just a list of them here in case you want to write them down and have a look at them uh, a bit later. But one important thing to note is that these, uh, with these passages is that homosexuality is listed along with other sins. It's never, God never picks out or isolates homosexuality for special treatment. And so this talk is not God versus LGBTQ. Because God is not against homosexuals or the homosexual community. Homosexuality in each of these passages is listed with heterosexual sins, putting both 
in the context of things that displease God and break our relationship with him. So, for example, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Paul writes here, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or who commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that. But you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It doesn't say that those people who commit these things cannot be saved, that their sins won't be forgiven, that they won't ever be able to be right with God. It says they will not inherit the kingdom of God, which means that we will not experience the fullness of God's kingdom, his power and presence. Otherwise, we'd all be in trouble, wouldn't we? Because none of us are perfect. And I expect if you look at that list... Have you ever been greedy? Have you ever eaten more than you should have done? Uh, you know, have you, over Christmas, did you have one glass or one shot or one pint more than maybe you should have done? Have you ever been rude towards someone in your thinking or maybe verbally? Of course, you know, we, we all come into these categories, don't we? None of us is perfect. And so God doesn't pick on people from the LGBTQ community and isolate them. We're all in the same boat together. The first five sins that are mentioned here, the ones that I've uh, put in bold, are all to do with sexuality, including uh, the, the second one, worshipping idols, because all the other religions had unacceptable sexual practices as part of their worship, and that's why it's in there. It's not, it's not a mistake. He's very clear in his thinking there. So the first five, just put them all in together. The standard that was set in the teaching in the Old Testament is confirmed in the New Testament. Both Jesus and the New Testament writers, under inspiration from God, carried the same standard through for the early church. In fact, it's only really in the last 40 years or so that affirming theology has become prominent, become a feature. Until then, it was recognized that the main and plain teaching of the Bible was that homosexual action is wrong. Affirmation theology is a modern phenomenon, and it's mainly restricted to the West as well. Those of us who take the non-affirming position also point to other passages in the Bible that may not directly mention homosexuality, but actually help us to understand the context in which these passages come. Now, we don't have time to dig through all of those. We'd be here for weeks. But the principle starts with the created order. God made, in the story right at the beginning, he made a differentiation between light and dark, between land and water, between animals and plants, between mankind and the rest of creation, and then finally between male and female. And that principle is carried through all the teaching in the Bible Certainly sexual teaching, it is, uh, it is a given uh, because that's the foundation and the foundation is not changed at any stage. 
uh, whether homosexuality is mentioned in a particular passage or not. So when Jesus teaches on marriage and sexual purity, he doesn't need to mention homosexual action because the teaching is, teaching is given in the context of creation, one man and one woman for life. And there is, there is no other understanding in the Bible. There was no other context in which they were writing. And some people say, well, Jesus didn't mention homosexuality, therefore he wasn't against it. Arguments from silence are never a, a good thing. But Jesus was working in this context, and the words that he used and the words that other New Testament writers use, uh, the word pornea that's used for sexual sin means any form of sexual action outside of a heterosexual marriage. And that was very clear in that society. So um, there's no argument there that holds water that says that Jesus was uh, pro-homosexual or pro-homosexual action. Because we need to also be clear in the distinction between homosexual orientation and homosexual action. It is always homosexual action that the Bible critiques, and it does so in the context of other sexual sins. Are you with me? Okay. Okay, let's look at Romans 12, verse 8. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters... You have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. As followers of Jesus, we have been set free and we are being set free from our old way of living in darkness and we are called to live in the light, to be radically holy. God accepts us. He's radically inclusive. He welcomes anybody, but then he is also radically holy. Simply because we feel like doing something doesn't mean that it's now okay as followers of Jesus to be able to do that. As you know, the more we give way to our feelings, uh, to our sinful nature, as it uh, calls it here, the greater that appetite becomes. And part of the temptation, you've probably noticed, is that the temptation comes and says, if you give way to this, if you do this, if you have the extra one, then that will be enough and you won't feel like doing it anymore. But actually the appetite grows. And in the area of sex, that is as true for the heterosexual as much as it is for the homosexual. If I was to follow my, uh, the temptations that I get to lust, that would grow. And it would gradually grow until that became my lifestyle. Uh, my beliefs shape my feelings. My feelings shape my behavior my behavior eventually becomes my lifestyle. And so whatever I feed, whatever I give way to, these urges that it talks here, that is what I start to see more of, that is what I become. Now, I don't want to trivialize things, but if I followed my desire to have things, I might now be the proud owner of several supercars, a couple of yachts, and a plane or two. Uh, none of which were actually mine. Uh, more realistically, I would be in prison, wouldn't I? Uh, but you get the idea. The desire to have, if unchecked, leads to greed, which then can lead to theft. It leads to not being completely honest with our taxes and in our dealings with people, and it soon gets us into trouble. In our society, the motto 
if it feels good, do it, has become an assumption of the right way to live. But it leads to disaster. For many, it leads to addiction, whether that is sexual addiction, drugs, alcohol, food, selfish ambition. We are increasingly moving into a, an addictive and abusive society which is highly intolerant of anyone who disagrees. And the Bible calls us to say no to our sinful nature, not because God is a killjoy, but because he has something better for us. He has fullness of life that he designed, uh, and he designed us for that. We've barely scratched the surface on what the Bible says, but I hope it gives you some kind of a picture. So what should someone do if they have a homosexual orientation? I think the Bible's clear. It's to be celibate in the same way that someone who is heterosexual and is tempted is called to be celibate as well, to be radically holy. Marriage in the Bible is between one man and one woman for life. I'm aware of at least two church leaders in Oxford City who have a homosexual orientation but are celibate and teach that homosexual action is wrong. The second thing that we can do, whether we have a homosexual orientation or heterosexual, is to surrender ourselves, including our sexual urges, to the Lordship of Jesus. And as we do that, we find that our brokenness begins to be transformed. We look to Jesus for healing. And I've seen a number of people with a homosexual orientation set free, uh, either through directly receiving ministry and being prayed for and God bringing healing that way, or simply by encountering Jesus. I wish it was that easy for everybody. But here we find another tension. Because we have the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. We have the now. We experience God's power. We see people healed. We see lives transformed. It's absolutely incredible. But this side of the grave, we don't see the fullness of that. And we have the not yet of the kingdom. We pray for people and they don't get healed. And I've prayed for a number of people and ended up burying them. But at the same time, I've prayed for people. During that same period, I prayed for people with cancer, and I saw them healed. And so we have that incredibly painful tension, especially when it's uh, people that we really love who are not healed, and we don't see the breakthrough. And so uh, although every person I have prayed for with a homosexual orientation has been set free from that, healed, whatever terminology you want to use there, um, I can't guarantee this side of the grave that that's going to be the case. If somebody comes to this church from the LGBTQ community, are they welcome? Absolutely, yes. That was what the whole first part of the, the talk was about. We want, to, we want them to feel very welcomed at these Sunday gatherings and in our connection groups. Sometimes people ask, well, what about things like uh, the Lord's Supper or baptism. Um, well, yes, those are open to anybody who is genuinely seeking Jesus 
and uh, open to his lordship in every area of their life. Because none of us are perfect when we get baptized. None of us are perfect when we come to the Lord's table. And that's what the washing and the celebrating of the Lord's Supper is all about. But if we're surrendering to Jesus, then it's, in a sense, it doesn't matter whether it's heterosexual or homosexual brokenness that we come with. And so if somebody's committing adultery uh, or regularly getting drunk and they are unwilling to change, then I wouldn't baptize them because it's hypocrisy. I wouldn't allow them to have the Lord's Supper because they've not surrendered their life to Jesus. And we need to take this radically holy side of our faith very seriously. Same is true for LGBTQ. So we need to be radically holy, and so uh, as well as that welcome that we give to people, um, and so leadership in all its forms in the Vineyard Movement is reserved to those who are surrendered fully to Jesus and willing to do whatever he says. And therefore, anyone who is a practicing homosexual or following a transgender lifestyle would not be able to be in leadership in a vineyard church. The Bible has a much higher expectation of holiness for those who are leaders. And things that you can get away with in the first few months of being a follower of Jesus, you can't get away with. There is a much higher standard that the Bible gives us. And, you know, there are other issues here. When, as a leader, I'm not just fulfilling a position and doing a job. I'm modeling to people how to live. And so Paul says to the people he's writing to, uh, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Romans 14, verse 10. So why do you condemn another brother, believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For the scripture says, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bend to me and every tongue will declare allegiance to God. Yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. So let's con stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall by what we do or what we believe, what we affirm. And we have it here again, radically inclusive. Don't condemn other people. Radically holy. We each stand before the judgment seat of God and we'll have to give an account. We've barely skimmed the surface of this subject, but I hope it gives you at least a little bit of confidence that what the Bible teaches is relevant for today and is accurate. The situation we face in today's society is very close to the culture faced by the biblical writers, right the way through the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. Affirming theology is a modern construct and it doesn't fit with orthodox belief and practice that is accepted worldwide and has been accepted right through history. And so time will tell whether affirming theology becomes labeled as just another heresy that has come into the church. But at the moment, uh, we won't do that. But the way it's shaping up, it looks like that kind of a thing. God loves each one of us equally, and he doesn't have favorites. He seeks and he saves everyone who is lost and is willing to be found. 
And so we echo what is on God's heart by saying, come as you are. Whether you're heterosexual or homosexual, whatever issues you face, we come with our brokenness and we seek Jesus for wholeness of life, for freedom, for healing, things that only he can bring. We come broken and we gradually become holy. We become more and more like Jesus. And the wider you can throw the door of your life to Jesus, the more quickly that transformation comes about. And then we invite other people into this radical welcome that we received from Jesus. When we were filthy, we stank of sin, there was nothing in our favor, nothing that was attractive uh, about us to God, but he still loves us and he still welcomes us. And even when we fall flat on our face again and we make the same mistakes again and again and again, God still radically welcomes us. And so we... uh, We invite other people into that radical welcome that we've had from God. And then we help them to journey into the radical holiness, experiencing the life of Jesus. And we say, come as you are, but don't stay as you are, because God's got something so much better than the mess that we've made of ourselves. If there's anything about this that's not clear, anything that you'd like to chat about, please uh, drop me a line or just... Come and have a chat at the end of the meeting and I'll try and direct you into to some further reading. There's, there's a huge amount out there, as you can imagine. But uh, I think, I hope uh, I've summarized what uh, in the Vineyard Movement we believe and certainly what we believe and the standard we have in this church. Let's stand, shall we? Father, we thank you for your promise in the Bible that though our sins are like scarlet, they'll become as white as snow. We thank you that there is no offense that is too big for you to forgive. We thank you for the power of the cross, that when Jesus died in our place, that every single sin, every offense was dealt with. And we thank you for the confidence that we can now have in coming before you as your children washed clean by the blood of Jesus, every offense taken care of. And so we come to you again and we just uh, say, Lord, would you forgive us? Whatever it is that we need forgiveness for, whether it's just resisting you in some way, not being open to you. Whatever it is that we've struggled with this week, we bring it to you now and we thank you for your incredible mercy your incredible grace that doesn't give us what we deserve but gives us the wonderful things that we don't deserve. And so Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd make that real for each one of us this week. That even now that you'd be soaking into us, into the hard ground in our lives that you would soak in. That where we've been dismissive of other people that you would forgive us and that you help us to change our attitude. Wherever we've put people in boxes and assumed things about them and whether it's to do with their sexuality or their skin color or their economics or their beliefs or whatever it is, Lord, we ask that you'd forgive us and that you'd give us your heart 
towards those who are different from us and also towards those who are far from you. And we ask, Lord, that you make this church, that you make each of our groups, each of the events that we put on, that they would be a place of incredible welcome, a place where people have felt more loved than they've ever felt before, but also a place where they see the incredible beauty of Jesus in us, the radical holiness, that uh, completely different lifestyle and understanding and beliefs, and that you'd help them, help them to catch a glimpse of your life in us. And so, Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Research shows that 80% of men and 20% of women have viewed pornography online at work. And uh, so the chances are the majority of us here struggle in some way uh, with those things. But whether it's a sexual temptation or other areas, uh, one of the things that God gives us is the ability in his family to be able to confess our sins to each other, uh, to be able to support each other and uh, to help each other along the way. So when we finish, if you need to get help in that way or if you want to do that through your connection group, then I'd strongly encourage you to do it and access the healing and the freedom that Jesus has won for us. So I bless you in the name of God, the creator, who had that incredible design for you, who loved what he saw when he designed you in the secret place. I bless you. I bless you to be able to embrace that blueprint that he's placed in your life. I bless you to be able to enter in more and more into the good things that God has for you, uh, the gifts that he's given you. I bless you with those gifts stirring up. I break the power of condemnation and fear and other things that would stop you from being able to receive the good things that God has for you. And I bless you with an increased understanding of the goodness and the lavishness of God towards you and towards other people. In Jesus' name. Okay, we've got uh, about five minutes before children need to be picked up from Vineyard Kids. So um, you've got time to chat. You've got time for, to ask for someone to pray for you. So the easiest thing is if you'd like to be prayed for, just grab somebody near you. Or you can come down to the front and we'll link you up with somebody who would love to pray for you. There are drinks at the back. You've got your Connect cards to go and take uh, and get your free CD. And there are, there are registration forms for uh, the connection groups as well. Uh, God bless you. Uh, see you again next week.